You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would this evening, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job. We're looking at the last chapter, Job 42, you'll find this on page 446 of the Pew Bible, and we're going to be reading this evening simply verses 7 through 9. Job chapter 42 Verses 7 through 9. Hear the word of God. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Well, as we have seen going through this incredible Old Testament book, Job was the greatest man of the East. And he was a sincere believer who was richly blessed, at least temporally. But almost in a moment of time, he lost it all, and his three friends assumed that it was all because of sin. They accused him of pride and presumption, and they called upon him to repent. Because in their view, God's management of the universe is by simple cause and effect. If a man prospers, he must be righteous. And if a man suffers, he must be wicked. And of course, that is bad theology. It's far too mechanical and it's untrue. For example, when the wicked prospered, Asaph saw on his feet almost stumbled. No, God's providence is far more complex than the friends understood. He is sovereign, and he has his own reasons for the way that he governs the universe. And when Job went almost immediately from riches to rags, his friends said that it was due to his unconfessed sin. They claimed that the just, sovereign God must be punishing him for iniquity. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends because you've not spoken of me what is right. And it seems clear, I think, from what the Lord says here, that Job's sins, at least, have been forgiven, as my servant Job has spoken. You see, God had spoken to Job twice, and in so doing, he deeply humbled the man. Job had darkened counsel without knowledge, but now he realized his fault. He truly repented. He turned to the Lord in faith, trusting in his promise. And for his part, God had done his sanctifying work deep within Job's heart. 
Proverbs 15, the wise man tells us that humility comes before honor. Well, and now that Job had been humbled, God was prepared to honor him. More than once, Job had expressed his hope that God would justify him. In chapter 13, he said, Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Chapter 23, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Satan had slandered Job by calling him a hypocrite and a mercenary. The devil's slander, as we noted back then, was an implicit accusation against the efficacy of God's grace. That's where he was ultimately aiming. He loves you simply and exclusively because of the benefits that you provide. And there are people like that. They identify with God simply because of the perks. But they're rocky ground. They want the benefits without the suffering. Remember Balaam who said, let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. He wished to die like the upright, but he would not live the life of the upright. And such was not the case with Job. No. Job sincerely loved and worshipped God. No matter what he was called to endure, he never walked away from his faith. It was hard, but he never walked away from his faith. And God addressed Eliphaz as he had been the first to speak and the natural ringleader. You've not spoken of God what is right. All of your conclusions are wrong. These three men had unjustly censured and uncharitably condemned Job. The so-called comforters had portrayed God as a judge, but never as a father. And his chastisements had been misrepresented as judgments for unconfessed sin. But in fact, those chastisements were designed to prove his grace. Their speeches were ill-advised. And they chattered in folly. Job darkened counsel without knowledge, but they had spoken like fools. So he requires them to offer seven bulls and seven rams as an atonement. And Job would act as a mediator on behalf of the men to spare them from judgment. And in this divine pronouncement, I think we can discern two important things. Number one, the three comforters had not spoken of God, what is right. At many points, their theology was sound. God is just. God is powerful. God is sovereign. But it was in the application of their theology that they went astray. They believed that prosperity was a sure indication of God's favor. At the same time, they said that adversity was a certain sign of divine wrath. And they didn't understand the mysterious nature of providence. Much of its design and much of its significance is totally hidden from human view. These are the secret things of God. As again, I mentioned earlier, Asaph said, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And his resolution of this whole thing came only when he entered public worship and was reminded of final judgment. So God has his secret things. And there is no need for us to know them. God does not govern the universe according to strict cause and effect. 
Oftentimes in the world, the wicked do prosper, and oftentimes the righteous do suffer. And that can be problematic for anybody who's searching for strict justice. But the word teaches us that God is infinitely good and he does good. So when you and I cannot understand him, we must trust him. He does good. Whatever he does is good. Second thing we learn from this is that what Job declared about God was right and he was commended. He was far more accurate than his friends in the assessment of providence. He wasn't suffering because of some great unconfessed sin. He knew that the Lord was good. He recognized God's sovereignty. He believed in divine justice and wisdom and absolute impartiality. And at the same time, he acknowledged the mystery of God's ordering of the universe. The most wise, righteous, gracious God may so order things that you and I might be assaulted, foiled, and for a time led captive by trials and temptations. That may happen. And yet we know beyond a shadow of a doubt on the basis of inspired scripture that it's for our good, that it serves salvation, it glorifies his name, and I have to admit, that's mysterious. And I don't have all the answers, and I don't think anybody does. For us, as Bob Gold used to say, it's to trust and obey. Job was looking forward to the rewards and the punishments of eternity, and that is absolutely critical. If we are to endure suffering patiently, that's what we need to do. After my skin has been thus destroyed, he said, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. Well, here's Job suffering unimaginable trials and fully expecting to enjoy the beatific vision in the age to come. His losses were painful. And his bereavements, you can imagine, were acute. But he looked beyond this life. He kept his focus on the heavenly world. And eternity will make this look like a mere blip in time. What, 70 or 80, maybe 90 years? What is that? I think if we apply this, we find, first of all, that we cannot judge a man or a woman by his or her circumstances, but by his or her faith in the Lord. From now on, says Paul, we regard no one according to the flesh. We do not form our estimate of anybody on the basis of outward circumstances. If we learn nothing else from the book of Job, that's clear. What matters most of all is a person's faith or unbelief. Does he or she love Christ? In light of eternity, a person's rank or wealth or position is totally irrelevant. It doesn't matter who you are. On your deathbed, I guarantee you will not be concerned with any of those things. The only thing that will matter is your relationship or estrangement from Christ. We judge a man or a woman in terms of their relation to Christ, not their circumstances. Good and godly people do suffer, and bad things happen to decent people. They may be at a disadvantage because of circumstances of their birth or their family or things totally out of their control. Or perhaps their adversity is due to hard knocks in life or bad choices along the way but we should not judge them on the basis of their worldly condition. Because temporal 
circumstances are in no way indications of God's favor or displeasure. The rich man, you remember, enjoyed all that this world had to offer. And yet God was displeased with him. And as far as we know, Lazarus lived in misery all the days of his earthly life. Miserable existence. Dogs licking his sores. And yet when his years came to an end, the angels escorted him to heaven. By contrast, the rich man was plunged into Hades where he suffered indescribable torment. And the Lord worked all those things together for his glory and Lazarus's good. Lazarus, I'm convinced, would not be in heaven today apart from his miseries. He would tell you if he could speak, I wouldn't trade any one of those days in complete misery for my eternity right now. God uses both pain and pleasure as he sees fit to prepare us for eternity. So we must not judge others by worldly standards, especially in the church. God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. But secondly, I think we see here, interestingly, that there is grace even for those who badly misapply the the truth of God's word. Did you catch that? As much as we criticize these three friends, and we have, it seems to me that they were honest men. And note, God was unwilling to let them perish. So he provided for even them a mediator. But first he humbled them by speaking directly about their errors. They had misinterpreted God's providence. They had misapplied the truth. Their understanding of rewards and punishments was terribly distorted, and that means their thinking was skewed. Their ministry was basically worthless, which reminds us to be careful to stick very close to the Word of God. It's not always easy to handle the Scriptures as they should be handled. That's why Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of Truth. But God required these friends to offer sacrifices through the ministry of Job because, you see, as flawed as they were, and these men were flawed, they were still objects of God's love. He would not let them perish in their sin. He desired to show these three friends mercy. God would spare them from what they so richly deserved, and he would not give them what they deserved. He'd give them what they don't deserve, because he's rich in mercy, and he's abounding in steadfast love. And we're not told explicitly, but they must have trusted in the Messiah, and it shows that there is a place in God's kingdom for even repentant Pharisees like these three. But then third, we find here that Job was appointed by God as the minister in in reconciling his three friends. And it illustrates how God is pleased to use the ministry of fallen men to reconcile sinners. You see, the Spirit works through the ministry of men uniting us to Christ. Job was used by God to reconcile these three misguided comforters. 
And so God uses the ministry to bring us to Christ, and then Christ brings us to the Father. And as God told his friends to seek Job's intercession, so we are told to seek Christ's. It's it's as if God said, I will not be pleased with you. I will not accept you apart from Jesus. And ordinarily, there can be no union with Christ without the offer of the gospel. So Jesus sends his ambassadors into the world to announce the terms of salvation. As we see here, without Job's ministry and intercession, his friends would have perished. So without the gospel ministry, everyone would perish without hope. Doesn't it illustrate the infinite condescension of Almighty God? That he would offer terms of salvation to sinners is an amazing thing. That's far more than he was willing to do for the angels who fell. Jude tells us the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Offering terms of salvation to sinful people is far more than he was willing to do for the angels who departed. God entreats sinners to be reconciled through fellow sinners. That's even more amazing. If he had called us immediately, think about it. You and I would be overwhelmed by God's majesty. We're told in Hebrews 12, so terrifying was the sight that even Moses said, I tremble with fear. If God employed angels to offer these terms of salvation, then they would more likely astonish us than persuade us. Can you imagine these glowing, brilliant creatures? No, God chooses to reconcile us through the ministry of redeemed sinners. Sinners who have personal experience of the mystery and remorse of sin and wrongdoing. Sinners who feel it's working in our own hearts and know the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And therefore, as Hebrew 5 teaches, we can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since we ourselves are beset with weakness. That's the human ministry. Job was a redeemed sinner, and God had called and equipped him for ministry. And the Lord was extremely gracious in directing these three men to their friend who had this treasure in a jar of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to him. But then fourth, I think Job's experience of God's grace prepared him as an instrument of grace. No one apart from the Lord Jesus himself has ever suffered as much as Job. He lost everything, he endured hardship, he experienced unimaginable grief, and then his wife said to curse God and his friends falsely accused him. He was alone. He had to deal with the indignity of loss and the sense of betrayal in his own family. But all this was put to good use in preparing him as a vessel of mercy. Not simply a vessel that receives mercy, but a vessel that extends mercy. Job had been kind and generous, to be sure, but his suffering made him more so. Despite all of his friends' wrongs, he was willing to intercede for them. I'm not sure I would have done it. Well, God commanded me, so I guess I'd have to. 
But it illustrates just how suffering produces character and how character can produce hope. Think of Paul's thorn in the flesh, which was a messenger of Satan sent to harass him. It kept Paul from self-conceit while openly displaying God's grace. And the apostle became a better man and a far more compassionate Christian. And I'm convinced that Paul's thorn in the flesh played a part in his reconciliation with young John Mark. You remember the young man who turned back from the hardships of missionary life? Paul wrote him off, cut him out. But later on in life, he changed his mind. And he wrote to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. I think Job's forgiving spirit gives evidence of the grace of God at work in his heart. And we're taught in our catechism that We can be encouraged to ask for and expecting to find forgiveness from God when we have this testimony in ourselves that we, from the heart, forgive others their offenses. We are encouraged to ask for that. We can expect that when the grace of God is at work in our hearts and we forgive one another. I think that's a valuable lesson in a cancel culture like ours. Such a merciful spirit in Job has been cultivated through suffering. And it's reminiscent of that text in which Paul speaks of true comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So as Job prayed for those who wronged him, do you see the parallel? Jesus prayed for his persecutors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, one might think that he'd say, Father, consume them in wrath. They rejected your gift. They've crucified the Son of God. But that's not what he said. We find Christ even as he was dying, interceding for sinners. And indeed, this petition is explained, or does explain the meaning and the significance of his death. Father, forgive them, because as we're taught in Colossians 1, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he died that all who take their, make their trust in him might be forgiven. And whoever repents and believes the gospel receives a full pardon because of what he did. And that spirit was alive and well in Job, and it ought to be alive and well in us. Finally, Job highlights the fact that God is reconciled through the sacrifice of a mediator. As you know, and as you can probably assume now, Job was pointing beyond himself to the mediator between God and men. Through intercession, he became a type of Christ through whom you and I are accepted. You yourselves, Peter says, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And thus, reconciliation occurred through the mediation of the Old Testament suffering servant, and he did so in anticipation of the New Testament suffering servant, even Jesus. He foreshadowed the redemptive work of God's Son. And Job's life shows that suffering will end. 
I'm anticipating myself a little bit, but that day is on the horizon. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. And as one commentator put it, Jesus will transform all our wounds into worship. To those called to endure chronic suffering, know that the end will come. We have no guarantee of a pain-free existence in the present world. No guarantee. But we have God's promise of a trouble-free existence in the world to come. God will swallow up death forever, according to Isaiah 25, never again to be threatened. Its bars will have been broken, its bands will have been snapped, and its cords will now be cast away. And our eternal joy will be forever out of death's reach. And there will be no more pain. What a wonderful thing Jesus has done for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for the example of Job, the episode between him and his three friends and all the things that we can learn from it. And it does remind us of just how incredible your mercy and your grace are. Help us to rejoice this evening and to be comforted with the thought that one day you will wipe away every tear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.